Hey, everybody. Today on the podcast, we are happy to welcome Tim Challies. Tim is a prominent blogger and author from nearby Oakville, Ontario, and it was a pleasure to talk to him about many different topics, including how parents are raising their kids in light of modern technology, the uh, prevalence and impact of pornography, both within the family and also in the church setting. And we also talked about the biblical and secular worldviews when it comes to the topics of sex and identity. Finally, at the end, we did a mailbag session where we talked about Tim's views on COVID and how the church is responding to that. We also talked about are we too Dutch in our Canadian form circles. And then finally, we talked about the Psalms and if they help or hinder our missional efforts. It was a fantastic episode. Really hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here is Tim Challies. Hey everybody, just before we get to our podcast with Tim Challies, we want to quickly plug a fun, interesting, and insightful book written by a good friend of the show, Jason Bowen. It's the second book of doodles and deep thoughts called Still Thinking. We're pretty certain that, unless you already have his first book, you haven't seen anything quite like it. It's cleverly designed and thoughtfully written. Both myself and Tyler have had a chance to read through it and peruse its various thoughts and writings, and there's a lot of stuff that really makes you stop and think. It's well worth the read. And we'd really appreciate it if you went to stillthinkingbook.com to check it out and support Jason's work. Once again, if you want to order your copy, go to stillthinkingbook.com. Thanks. Now back to the show. Well, thanks for coming in, Tim. My pleasure. Uh, Needed we, a little drive in the country. This was great. Yes. <laughs> you're way out from Oakville. So yeah. Um, yeah. Great to have you in the studio after uh, some bit back and forth and you know, it's, we're glad that you're in person instead of over the Zoom. Yeah, uh, think we would make technology, it but uh, it's a little more trustworthy audio, hopefully. <laughs> and we're all plenty tired of Zoom, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Point, so, although we try to be very courteous on the, on the Zoom call, but uh, um, all right. So um, maybe we'll just give you a chance to introduce yourself because I'm sure many, many people know you and. Um, I'm sure that's fairly obvious to some people, but uh, maybe you yeah, can introduce yourself, your background, and and kind of what you're up to and sure uh tim Challies live in oakville as you mentioned uh grew up closer to this area in the uh, ancaster area but um yeah i live in oakville now i attend grace fellowship church which is over in toronto a reformed baptist church there um married to aileen we met and married in ancaster and um we've been married now for 22 years and we've got three kids nick who is a seminary student down in louisville kentucky abby who's uh, Nick is 20. Abby is 18. She's uh, also down at uh, Southern Seminary slash Boys College down at Bible College there. And then Michaela's 14, still at home. Right on. Very cool Good stuff. Yeah. So what is, what's some of your uh, work that you've been working on lately? Like, Yeah, I'm a blogger by trade. So mostly what I work on is the blog. I try and put out several articles a week and then kind of daily roundups of interesting things for people to browse. Just yeah. kind of, you know, we just have to click on things sometimes and yeah. just we need I mean, to we click. Found. We need to read something. And so yeah, I try we... and provide some of the, the best clicks on the Internet for people <laughs> to, to read in a well, given we... day. Yeah, definitely clicked a bunch of those. Yeah, so. <laughs> right. And I think we're we sort of acclimatized ourselves to yeah. looking for things to click. And so, yeah, I try and provide some good links from mostly Christian sites around the web, Christian yeah. blogs, etc. And I'm also working on uh, one book that's done in a couple of days now. And uh, that'll be out sometime next year. And then about to start on another one. I haven't actually announced yet, but... Uh, something totally different for me, right something on. I've never tried before. And I'm looking cool. forward to jumping into that as of October 1st. Neat. How many books have you put in now? 
I've got no, maybe like eight or 10 or something books in total. Been, there's I'm been a bunch, sure. I couldn't count them. So. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. I don't know. I just haven't thought of actually counting them. Oh, so. That's good. Yeah, <laughs> just, <laughs> just keep working. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. You mentioned Ancaster there. I believe you grew up in Canadian Reformed churches? I did, yeah. So okay. when I was younger, much younger, um, my parents were Presbyterian yeah. at heart. They were saved into Pentecostal churches, became Presbyterian after bumping into Francis Schaeffer in uh, Switzerland and kind of getting Reformed theology in uh, Toronto. They were part of the Presbyterian church. They kind of, the, the churches there settled on some hard times and they met Ron Gleason, who was pastor of Bethel. Uh, Canadian Reformed Church in Thornhill and became fast friends with him. So decided to go to that church. And so from the time I was about, I don't know, maybe 10 years old or something, we were immersed in the uh, Canadian Reformed world. I'd already been in the uh, Christian Reformed schools. Hmm. So I was kind of familiar with the Dutch world and the yeah, Dutch yeah. food and the Dutch names and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we got into uh, that. And then my dad decided to go to the theological college. So we moved to Ancaster and that's basically where I grew up from, went to Timothy Christian school there and yeah. then went to Guido and ended up leaving cool. in grade 12 to go to Ancaster high and uh, finishing up high school there. But yeah, so my, my teenage years were all spent in the Canadian reformed. Oh, that's oh, cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's, that's where I live right now, honestly. Yeah. yeah. My, my dad just moved there. So, okay. Right. Cool. Yeah, actually. Yeah. 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 <laughs> actually, yeah. I got a book for you after this, but uh, all right, well, cool. we can talk about that later. All right. Yeah. yeah we're done. You want to get into the main topic here? Probably. Uh, <laughs> we've covered the intro a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so we wanted to talk about um, guarding kids online. And I mean, we're going to probably end up going so many different directions with this. But uh, as an introduction, um, I guess you've done you've done a lot of um, talks um, to different churches. And I think even in our church circles, uh, King Reform Church circles, um, about raising kids, um, raising them in the fear of God and um, helping parents to understand, you know, how to navigate some of the, the cultural issues and then, you know, and now with the rise of technology, um, you've been pretty aware of what's happening with technology. So, um, yeah, we just kind of wanted to start talk, talking about, uh, you know, set the scene. What, what, what can kids or what can parents do um, to help? What are the challenges? Kids? And then, yeah, what are your, what's your advice? Great, just yeah. broadly? A lot of this will draw from a book I wrote called The Next Story, which was about technology. And it really came out of this oh no moment where my kids are starting to get old enough to be interested in all these new technologies and just my own lack of knowledge of how to raise Christian kids or uh, kids I'm hoping will uh, put their faith in the Lord and uh, just raising them in this new world. And there really wasn't very much to guide parents. And so I kind of did the the background of, okay, what is technology and how does technology function in human society? What should Christians think about technology? How should Christians think about technology in distinctly Christian ways and kind of built out from there into, okay, once I got that in place, now I can start to think about how to raise my kids in this mm -hmm. world. And, and to be fair, I think a lot has changed in the last 10 years or so. When my kids were young, very young, just kind of being raised, um, like we were just waking up to the idea then that, oh, pornography is kind of a big deal for young people. That was just kind of an awakening people were having in like the, the right. early 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, Parents raising kids today, if you've got like a seven-year-old kid, you know full well that pornography is a big issue and you know it spreads through the internet and through devices. So a lot's mm -hmm. changed. And I think the situation is very hopeful, very hopeful. 
uh, versus what it was maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Right, just because of the awareness and stuff, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Awareness is a huge part of it. And so I'm raising my children differently than I would have even 10 years prior. So right, there's right. an entire generation of young guys who got into pornography, an entire generation. Right. And that's because they're, at least in part, their parents weren't being watchful. But that's right. because their parents just didn't, didn't know. know. They hadn't yeah. figured it out. Um, they just didn't know that if you give all the 15-year-old boys in the world an internet connection and a screen, there's only yeah. one thing that's going to happen. We all, no, we all know sure. what's going to happen. Yeah. But we didn't know it at the time. And so I think my generation of parents is kind of the first that we ourselves were the ones who stumbled into this stuff online. We were the ones who were kind of the, the guinea pigs. And now we're realizing, like, I got to raise my kids differently. And so I think right. most parents today are putting measures in place that just didn't exist. Right. So I think you've touched on this in a few talks that we listened to. And and um, people seem to either um, embrace technology in their in their family and, and they surround themselves with it. Or there's also a tendency to just, you know, abolish it from the from the home. And so um, I thought maybe you could just talk on like what's the act what, what are the benefits of technology and, and then is there a way that christians should be striving to use technology because it is kind of a blessing for for us and and i guess there's a calling for us to use it correctly right yeah so first the definition of technology we have a real definition and a functional definition and right. what you're using right there is the functional definition which is anything that was invented after i was born so mm -hmm. we always think technology is just the new stuff but we're all using technology if you sit around the table after dinner and open your psalter and open your bible you're using technology these are they're old technologies now the printed book but it was a technology for the great majority of humanity's experience on this earth right. we didn't have books gutenberg invented the printing press and people found ways of putting the pages together into books and now we have have books so that too is technology so i understand what you're asking right. about is specifically <laughs> digital technologies yep. and yeah i think there's a we understand the danger of them, both in terms of what our kids may encounter through it or what our kids may learn through it. Um, and also the danger of just our kids fixate on these things. And every parent has realized most kids would rather spend their time on a screen than in the real world. Right. Um, they, there's just a, a level of ease and comfort and joy in watching Netflix that seems to somehow supersede the joy of being out in the woods and mm -hmm. uh, just running around with friends and all that, or at least they're in, in serious competition. And so parents, what they can do is just pull back altogether and say, none of that for you. Um, the problem with that is your kids need to know how to use these things. It mm -hmm. won't be long before a few things will happen. Either they'll move out and they won't really know how to use these devices. They won't have been trained to use them well. Or they'll be the only kids in their social circle who don't have them and you'll give them to them anyways. Um, almost no parent has the conviction to say you can't have an iPhone when every other kid in the class has an iPhone or, right. or equivalent. And now your kid is the one who can't keep up with his friends. He can't keep up with the youth group because they're using Facebook or something to communicate. And so sooner or later, your kids are going to get these things. So um, I see introducing your kids to technology, like introducing them to a car is that you show them how to do it. You show, you give them lessons, you, you teach them how to do it well, and then you give them some some privilege. And if they misuse that privilege, you start to pull it back. You withdraw right. some of that privilege. Um, but generally you give them privilege and the more they prove themselves able to handle it, you just give them more and more. And by the time, hopefully your kids are 16 or 18, you can just leave them to use that thing and you don't have right. to worry about it anymore. You've trained them how to use it well. Right. Right. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that just you saying that you train your kids as, you know, trying to trying to make them mature to to their age, you know, to understand what's what's available, what's not available. But um, is there something that parents can do to stay ahead of the curve on that? Like, I'm just thinking you used a car analogy. You know, what if uh, you just rode a horse and buggy your whole life, but your kid is going to end up in a car and you're not really sure what that even looks like? Um, is there something that parents can do to, to stay on top of, you know, the next app and the next, you know, if there is, I haven't really found it other than parents asking their kids what they're using and doing their best to look into it and try and figure out what it is. Um, the, the apps changed really quickly. Two years ago, none of us had ever heard of TikTok. today. It's the thing for young people. They migrated away from many other apps, many other platforms to fixate on that one. And we know full well, two years from now, they will have moved on to something else. And so it's a constant battle for parents to keep up, to inform themselves and to try and understand these things. Always feeling like you're on your heels because you're old and your kids are young and they move really quick and you always feel behind the curve. So right, right. It's, it's really difficult, but all you can do is try and inform yourself and try and just uh, understand what your kids are using and, and why. Right. I've had the advantage of two of my kids have had zero interest in social media and they just haven't wanted the apps. And so that's made my life a lot easier. The <laughs> third was a little bit interested, but really didn't care for them either. So yeah. we've not had to have that like drag out fight about Snapchat or something. Everybody else wants it and I want it. It just, What's, it never really came up. It's interesting you say that actually, because more and more young people are actually just checking out of, of social media because yeah. they're finding it too stressful or, or yeah. whatever. It makes them too anxious. Right. One of my kids yeah. just had zero interest. He just didn't yeah. care. He's an old soul and just yeah, wasn't like, really interested in social yeah. media. Another one just understands in a way that it won't be good for her. She understands her own temptations to comparison. Yeah, especially And just girls. knowing yeah. that most of social media, especially with young people, is all about the comparison. You compare mm. yourself to others. You take the absolute best picture of yourself you can and you put that out there to make yeah. everybody else feel miserable and make yourself feel good. And she just understood that. And um, then my other daughter just wasn't yeah she just didn't really struggle with that it wasn't yeah. uh, she could look at those things and not feel hard done by by them right. so yeah so i think we've had it a little bit easy there compared to some parents i know who are really fighting this out in a different way right yeah for sure it comes back to that christian view of technology you talked about though is there a way uh, to teach teach kids to or is there even a i suppose there is but a christian worldview that applies to social media like can it be used in a positive way? Yeah, it absolutely can be. And so I think to understand technology, we've got to go all the way back to the creation mandate and understand that God told us to exercise dominion over this world. We've got this cultural mandate um, as well. And part of the, the way we carry out God's will for us in this world is to create, to innovate. You know, Adam and Eve had this mandate to spread out over all of creation and to exercise dominion over it. But God made them just two people naked and alone in a little garden with nothing. So they had a lot of work to do <laughs> if they were going to if they were going to carry out God's will. And a lot of that involved inventing and involved creating. And so in that sense, technology is good, right? It's a way we carry out God's mandate for us. Um, the problem is we get to Genesis 3 and we see humanity falling into sin and everything that could be used for good is now also used for bad. And so when it comes to technology, there's 
always benefits in a technology. We see that, we know that. There's always drawbacks in yeah. technology. And so our job then is to understand what are the benefits? How will this bring good into my life? Or how will this allow me to do good for others and bring glory to God? Yeah. Um, you guys are doing that with a podcast. Like you, you see, there's a possibility here. We can use this for good, but there's also drawbacks to it. I'm sure um, as there is for any technology, there's ways you can actually harm people. You could do bad content. You could set up a podcast as an alternative to the local church rather than a sure. supplement to the local church. Mm -hmm. yep. um, you could undermine people's doctrine through it instead of affirm their doctrine to, or teach yeah. their doctrine. <laughs> so any technology can be used for good or for, for bad. And so parents need to understand how will this technology in the hands of my eight-year-old or 18-year-old be used for good? How will it be used for, for ill? So I, I hear you on that, but the way you describe it is like, it's a neutral thing almost like it's technology and we can just use it like this table. Like you can use tail for good. I could, if I was strong enough, you know, lift it and mm. you or something, but also we use it for, for a podcast. But social media apps are, are literally designed to like to suck you in and keep you on the platform. Right. So out of, yeah, I hear you, but I'm not sure if it totally applies if they're designed like that. Well, yeah. So uh, I think generally technology is neutral in the sense that it's not intrinsically evil or intrinsically good. It's that it doesn't have a soul. Sure. It's not yeah, your dog was, isn't intrinsically good or evil. It doesn't have a soul, right. but it exists in an evil world. So your dog can do evil things, but it's not a moral agent. Right. In that sense. Um, so when we look at something like TikTok, this is where we need some media ecology, Marshall McLuhan or Neil Postman yeah, yeah, yeah. or people like that who would say, OK, what you need to ask then is why was this made? Who made this and why? Because there's ideas or ideologies embedded in every technology. Mm -hmm. And if you are using TikTok without an awareness of why was it made, who made it, what purpose is it meant to serve? then you'll you'll probably be approaching it like it's neutral like there's no ideas embedded in it yeah, right but there may be very good ideas there may be very bad ideas embedded in it so yeah. the book is an example we used before what are the ideas embedded in a book right and people have put a lot of thought into this what are the good ideas what are the bad ideas and when books first came <laughs> along people were really concerned that it would erode human memory because instead of <laughs> instead of defining knowing as having it in my brain yeah. we would define knowing as having it in a book and so we, it changed our whole definition of knowledge on the mm. other hand there there wouldn't be a reformation without books right the the Reformation came to bloom because of the printing press, because of the, the ability to print and distribute dense written theological material. Mm -hmm. yeah. So again, you go searching for the ideology, you go searching that that's embedded in that technology, and then you just see how it's how it's being used. Do, this is a bit of a tangent, but do you think podcasting is the next step of like the books of our time? Because it expands it to that many more people who can just listen? I think podcasting is not because we like to be able to return to things and skim things. So I think what, what has to happen for mm -hmm. any video based medium is eventually it needs to become or audio based is skimmable. Mm -hmm. um, in the end, I think we still want the words, not just the images and the audio. Okay. Um, I think. I should be just wrong. Just a gut feeling? Or? <clears throat> Yeah. 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 No, I mean, you so could be right. I'm, I could I'm be, not sure. Yeah. I could be wrong on that. I'm, I'm very willing to, yeah. to think that. And certainly it's the thing right now. It is yeah. today what blogging was back in the early 2000s. It's sort of everybody's getting in on them. I get 
emails all the time about my podcast. I don't even have a podcast well, right gonna, now, but everyone assumes yeah. it yeah. Um, just yeah. because that's what you do. So yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you stopped it, I guess, for indefinitely or what's the plan? Yeah, I, I do podcasts every now and again. If I get an idea, I'll do some for a while, right. but it's not my preferred medium. I'm still mm. a writer at heart. And so that's yeah. what I mm. prefer to do. Okay. I'm not a reader at heart. So I, I always find uh, flicking a podcast yeah. on you know, four times speed and just listening to it real quick right. for, the, for the key words or whatever. Yeah, um, right. But. And, and so they're <laughs> developing technologies that allow you to bookmark podcasts and come back to them and transcribe them and all mm -hmm. that. And that's where I think in the end of the day, a lot of the information we encounter, we want to use in the future. And it's hard to use information you've only heard through your ear, you like to have the, I think most people like to have the words on a page. Right. And so some people transcribe what they heard that was of interest to them. But if you put out a transcription, then I think people maybe can use it more in research purposes. And mm -hmm. I, I doubt you see many podcasts appearing in the footnotes of books or in the uh, footnotes of doctoral theses or yeah, something like that, <laughs> because it's just hard to, to remember that information and take action on it. But once they're, right. they're in written form, I think you'll see more of that. Right. Gotcha. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I wanted to go back to, um, we were talking about parents not really knowing um, the technology um, that's available to their kid. And I think something that stemmed out of um, their uncertainty was accountability software. And I know you've talked a bit about that um, here and there, but uh, I just wanted to get your your thoughts on accountability software and, and how it can be used, its limitations. And, you know, is that kind of the, the be all and end all when it comes to um, keeping your family pure and, and yeah. you know, so I think there's two different things to keep in mind. There's accountability and there's filtering, which are very different things. Right. And so filtering software hopefully stops people from ever encountering bad stuff. So I think filtering is more important than accountability, at least when your kids are young. And so a device like Circle or something like that, um, most routers now, your family router or even your plan from Kojiko or Rogers or whatever may have this built in. But just the ability to say this category of site my kids cannot access or this right. kind of information they cannot access. I think that's a good necessary thing when kids are young because when kids are very young what you want to do is keep them from encountering things they don't even know exist you don't want your i i've met the parents of eight-year-olds who have become porn addicted they i mean they, they encountered things they didn't know existed they didn't know they were there they found them and they were drawn to them the kids are it's not their fault their parents should have kept them from encountering those things mm -hmm. and so that's the first level of protection once kids are old enough to know what's there and to want it, that's where accountability software comes in. Um, if filtering is stopping them from getting there, accountability software is tracking where they've been and then sending a report to mom and dad or an accountability partner or something. So one right. is proactive, the other is reactive. Right. Um, so I think both have a function, but the proactive part, especially when they're younger, the reactive part, especially when they're older. And of course, the great problem with accountability software is that it's pretty easy to get around if you're young. And um, so young, younger people are pretty adept often at skirting it. Mm. Parents can put a lot of confidence in, well, I put covenant eyes on his phone. There's not a lot of 18 year olds or 16 year olds who are really going to be held up for very long by the Covenant Eyes app that mom and dad put on their phone. So um, right. any of those things can be useful, but I think what they're, they're most useful in doing is holding the bad stuff at bay so mom and dad can help their kids grow in godly character. Right. Um, you don't want to be competing with porn when your kid is 12 years old as you're trying to 
frame a Christian worldview and teach mm -hmm. them how to live in God's world. That's too strong competition when they're getting into sin and uh, becoming addicted to, to evil things. Um, so you use that software to hold things at bay so you can teach and train them. And then hopefully by the time they're 16 or 18, they're old enough now, uh, they're well-trained. They don't, you know, they don't need accountability software because they don't want to look at it anyways. You've, you've trained them. They've right. um, put their faith in the Lord. They're wanting to live as a Christian in his world. Yeah, I think it's, that pretty well covers it. I think, um, yeah, you, you expressed that before. Yeah. It's not really the be all and end all like the, um, the accountability it's, it's getting rid of that desire. So, um, mm -hmm. I guess that's just one of the tools. Um, yeah. And I, I guess I meant more filtering when I, when I asked the question, but uh, yeah, it kind of, yeah. that's a good answer. Um, I think the filtering, um, what, what are some ways that, what are some ways that parents can use that filtering and then in, in conjunction with, um, obviously teaching their kids from day to day or, you know, week and week and over years. Um, maybe, maybe, uh, you could speak a little bit to like maybe the, the time frames of like, you know, kids are very young. Um, are, are, do parents have a duty to introduce them to, you know, what are the dangers or are we trying to kind of rein everything in to shelter our kids? Well, I think in all of parenting, you're not sheltering your kids too much. You need to expose your kids to the world as it is. The problem is if you totally shelter your kids until they're 18 and then you just unleash them on the world, they won't have been taught that sin is attractive, but sin lies. Right. Um, it, it promises what it can't deliver, but you need your kids to understand they're going to want to sin. They're, they're, they're going to desire to sin. And so to, to let them see the consequences of sin, it, uh, I think of a family I, I knew a while back who within the wider family, there was a divorce going on. So um, an aunt was leaving an uncle and they wanted to shelter their kids from that. They, they And their kids were probably like in their be, between like, let's say 12 and 14 or 10 and 14 in that age. They wanted to shelter their kids from it. And I thought, no, you need your kids to see stuff like that because that's the real world. And mm -hmm. they need to see there's consequences to adultery. You can destroy a family if you commit adultery, they may not have a fully formed understanding of what adultery is, anything like that, but to see the consequences of sin and to see the, again, that sin offers what it can't actually fulfill. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to, to things online, yeah, you're not going to let your kids see pornography, but I think you want your kids to start to use it and um, they'll they'll encounter areas where they're going to defy you. You're going to tell them you can use it for an hour and they'll use it for two hours. That now gives you an opportunity as a parent to have that conversation with them and to maybe pull back some of that privilege you've given them and to tighten things um, right. until they prove themselves that they can <laughs> obey and that they're going to live under, under the law you've given them, which of course prepares them to live under the law God has given them. Right, right. Yeah. Maybe we want to introduce some uh, Lucas, some facts about, uh, I think we, we looked through some stats and stuff. I know that, that Tim's talked about it and, and brought some stats in some of his speeches that he gave that we've listened to, but yeah, well, um, not so much stats, maybe just, I want to talk about like the broader, you call it like porn culture, I guess, or whatever. The prevalence right? in the, it's so ubiqu ubiqu ubiquitous. That's the word. There that's we go. Word. Yeah, yeah. That's a trick going fellow in my mouth. Anyways, it's everywhere is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, um, for yeah, kids growing up today, like, even if you don't see it, like, if you, I mean, if you go to a public school, for sure, you're definitely going to hear about it. Christian school, you know, it's going to be joked about it at certain points, whatever. Yeah. Like just being honest. Um, and then, yeah, from there on to in college and same sort of thing. Um, yeah, maybe like just talk about where that, that came from. I mean, it's everywhere now, uh, but how that's kind of grown, uh, grown out into the, the broader world. 
And then um, why are people today who aren't Christian but very often just like fine with it typically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, to trace the rise of pornography in our society is, um, I mean, you got to go way back. Dark places. Yeah, you got to go into dark places and into... uh, I mean, you got to go back a long time into the the just the sexualization of Western culture. And I'll make a book recommendation, Carl Truman's book that's out in November called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Absolutely amazing. And he covers a lot of this ground. Um, the, the book starts with this sentence, essentially, which is, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And then there's 400 pages of explaining how that sentence can make sense in the Western mind today, when it never would have made sense to anyone else in all of human history. And part of what he covers there is the sexualization of Western culture, especially through the work of Freud and yep. um, and others, about how everything became sexual. And, you know, you kind of follow the train into the 50s, 60s, and guys like Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine sort of breaking culture into porn uh, in sort of a, what we consider today as basically advertising or something. But, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we barely even blink at that. That's on the billboards above the cities today. Um, and then from there, uh, it really took the Internet, I think, to allow people to quietly mm-hmm. in, the, in the privacy of their own home, explore the most base possible pornography you could ever come up with, you could ever make. So yeah. um, porn has become so prevalent today because of our technology. So you can't separate the two, just like the printing press gave rise to Playboy magazine and other things. It's um, digital technologies that have given rise to today's porn. And that's because it can be infinitely freely distributed. It can be very easily pirated and there's no, you can do it quietly in the privacy of your own home. Um, Even when I was a boy, if you wanted to see pornography, you had to steal it from someone, you had to steal it from a store or you just had to find it. Um, But you couldn't just, get it but today of course any kid can Mm -hmm. access endless amounts of it billions countless billions of hours of it they could spend their whole childhood in it um and then pornography is coming out to find our kids that's the thing it's not just there as something our kids have to look for it's something that's coming after them the internet is geared in such a way it knows what the desires of a 13 year old boy are and it's going to find those 13 year old boys and you know one of the one of the memories that stands out to me about becoming a college student was showing up at McMaster university day one and having all the credit card companies there Why? Because you get them when they're 17, you got them for life, right? And it's the exact same with porn. They're trying to get kids at 12, 13, even younger, average first age of exposure to pornography is like 10 or 11 now. You get them, you tune them into a certain style or a certain site or something, you got a customer for life. So they're out seeking out young people they can can draw in. That's kind of a scary thing because it's it's very active and intentional from, from this from the culture and uh, yeah and there's there's nothing really in our culture that pushes back to that um i guess people understand the danger for a a young kid but um but it's so so very accepting of of all that there's very few people pushing back ironically it's it's christians and like some second wave feminists and stuff like some old school feminists now Mm -hmm. not the the (laughs) kind of the, the, the newer, newer the, the very <laughs> avant-garde, but sort of that older group who's really understanding that it is misogynistic and it is totally. exploiting women and it is ultimately harming women. Um, but yeah, it's, it's largely, I mean, that's a, th- there's a lot of those strange pairings happening in society right yeah. now, or mm-hmm. strange bedfellows are 
just trying to work on same uh, on some of these same issues together. Right. But yeah, there's not a lot of people standing against it. And in fact, the opposite is true as it's being considered healthy. Um, our young people are being introduced to it as a healthy form of experimentation or understanding what you are or what you like or what you want to try, all that. So yeah, it's being introduced to them um, very young and just Again, they're bombarded with it. Uh, our yeah. kids have to work way harder today not to see porn than my generation did to see porn. We had to, it was hard to find. Today, it's hard to avoid. Yeah, yeah that's so true. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, everywhere. Sure. Like even like meme culture, you see it yeah. all the time. Like, I don't know, familiar with that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's and the, the bar has been, has been lowered so far that yeah. again, what, what's pornography today is, or what, what was pornography in my grandparents' day is just so common today. Like it's not it's in even, your Instagram feed or whatever. It, right. It's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And so yeah. um, I don't even think we know what pornography is. You know, that infamous definition in American politics that yeah. was whatever pornography. I, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. I don't think we do anymore. Like I think mm. back in the fifties, maybe you did because you understood there was that line and where people don't, uh, there's certain things you just don't show in society. Yeah. Um, mm. But today, no, I don't think we know that. Um, yeah. So it, has that been, um, because, of um like a movie culture like um i guess i'm just thinking that when you're raising a kid um and you sit down to watch a movie i mean it's it's just everywhere like porn is everywhere the yeah. just um it's way more free than it was say in the 50s where you know yeah i guess there was that line and um i'm thinking just the prevalence of yeah like films and um the way that you can get images out um mm -hmm. It, it just, yeah, it just kind of, it just is bombarding kids to the point where there's no real line to say, okay, well, this is, you know, this is how much, you know, you should be able to show as a modest, you know, woman and, you know, as a, you know, as a man, like, yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of it does come through pop culture, um, through TV, through movies, through, um, music videos and so on. Um, as a parent, I know there's been a, it's just so many movies I'd like to watch with my kids or TV shows I'd like to watch with my wife or whatever. And we just can't because we have a very, very low tolerance for um, immodesty, I guess you could say. Mm. And I mean, uh, I'm not. Yeah, we'll leave that. But yeah, immodesty, you know, like just people yeah. showing off what they shouldn't and then sexual content in those things. So and just suggestive, um, like, yeah, it could be even in words. It can be in jokes. Yeah, it can be in. Right. And it's uh, just so see, prevalent. Jokes, I think, is the important thing. So the reason <laughs> a big part of introducing the Western world to homosexuality was to make it funny. Right? That was part of getting us there. There was getting people to laugh at it. Once you laugh at homosexuality, it's hard to be outraged by homosexuality or to have strong convictions on it because you've been watching Will and Grace and you've been laughing at it for years and you've been watching Friends and they're making gay jokes and you're laughing at them. Right. Um, I think porn was very much the same. It was introduced in Friends. It was introduced in other shows um, as, a, as something to laugh about. And after a certain amount of time, if you keep laughing at it, mm. then it's very difficult to to take it seriously and right. to have a real moral argument against it yeah 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 that's so true eh? and it, it just yeah it's so it's so prevalent that it's hard to as as a parent to say okay well this is you know what you should be seeing and what you shouldn't because it's almost like it's in your face all the time yeah although we talked about pushback a bit before and you, you didn't think there was too much coming but i have seen a bunch of it online uh different groups so there's like uh oh, what's it called again um this is 
the name escapes me again. Fight the new drug. That's, right. that's yep. an organization. There we go. Yeah. Um, like Gary Wilson, like your brain on porn. Uh, there's a couple of these other sites too. And there's just like these online communities of young, young guys who are fighting against that. Mm. Cause you're seeing a giant rise in uh, erectile dysfunction too, yep. because of this mass addiction. Yep. Right. So yep. I think, do you ever get any feedback from people who aren't Christian, but appreciate your, your honesty on porn? Like, do you talk about the science of it all? Probably not. Nothing so much, comes maybe. to mind really no. in that realm. Yeah. No, I don't think yeah. I have gotten a lot of feedback. I know there is like there's whole communities on Reddit and stuff too, yeah, where they're yeah, opposed yeah. to pornography. But and I think that's kind of out of the Jordan Peterson stream of, of yeah. thinking the atavism or whatever you want to call it, that kind of stoicism uh, of life where you don't give yourself over to those things. You have a, a destiny to fulfill and it's becoming mm -hmm. a better man and you don't yeah. become a better man by lying around looking at porn. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. You come to it by self-denial and that stoic sense. So there's nothing christian about it but it's at least no there's no christian ideology behind it but it's at least a good thing we still rejoice that they're doing it which is yeah. refusing to look at porn um because they're um eager to improve themselves and they, they believe that's contradictory to self-improvement yeah mm. totally we talked a lot about like the parental side of things too but we have a lot of younger listeners too who aren't parents but um on this issue like what's the best way for like if you have a friend struggling or that sort of thing to uh, to help them out yeah. Well, a lot of it, I mean, you, you don't want to be legalistic about it, no, but no, the no. key to fighting porn is to want to be holy more than you want to sin, right? It's really that simple. That's, that's what the Christian life is, is waking up to the horror of our sin and waking up to the beauty of holiness and then just determining, I want to be holy, not sinful. Yeah. Um, and so, mm. I mean, how do you get there? You get there by coming alive to I mean, just coming alive to, to what God's doing um, within you. It's, it's putting sin to death, coming alive to righteousness. It's putting off the old man, putting on the new. It's taking advantage of the means of grace, right? Of just um, taking advantage of these, these means God gives us for growing in, in knowledge of him and growing in obedience to him. Um, you, you can... If you talk about means of grace being generally broken down along scripture, prayer and church fellowship or Christian community, something like that. I mean, all of these you're you're in your in the word, you're immersing yourself in the word day by day, um, not just to tick, tick a box on your daily to do list, but to spend time with the Lord. You're praying every day, you're confessing sin, you're asking God to to uh bring you to greater holiness to sanctify you. And then you've got Christian community as well, which I'd say is opening up to other people. Hopefully somebody who's a, an elder or a pastor confessing that sin to them and asking them to um, advise you as they see fit. But then also I think there is some value in, in an accountability partner. Yeah. Peer to peer approach. Yeah. Yeah. I would say either peer to peer and that can be helpful. You have to know yourself though, because those can also become just groups of 18 year old boys commiserating that. Yeah. I'll, we all looked at porn again this week and we'll all try harder next week. Yeah. Um, versus having an older man who, you know, may just show up and ream you out, which is, I think what a lot of guys want. Why, why mm -hmm. is Jordan Peterson so popular? Because totally. he's willing to tell guys, stop that. Just yeah. Be a man. Clean your and room, I, bucko. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> and I room. think that guys respond well to older men who will look them in the eye and say, "No, this, this stops. You don't do this." Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we all we all need to to offer that to others, to younger men, and we all need to request that from older men as well. So yeah, there is peer accountability, but I think often better is um, an older man accountability, somebody you respect. Hmm. So how do you? 
I guess I'm just thinking from, you know, if, if we have listeners who, who are struggling, how, what's the first step, I guess, to, to becoming, you know, open enough with yourself and then open enough with others to get to the point where you're, you know, you're willing, you know, as you know, to put your pride aside and to go to somebody and say, you know, regardless food is, I don't, you know, I guess everyone's context is different, but, um, is there something that people can kind of use? I don't know. Maybe that's a loaded question. I'm not sure what the what you're asking. I'm just I'm just thinking like if if somebody recognizes this is a problem in in the in their lives and was thinking, you know what, it would be good if I had somebody who was mm-hmm. like, you know, could just tell me how it is and and help me out. Look, you know, look at what I'm look or like, you know, come alongside me as an accountability partner or something. Yeah. Um, but they're just scared to do it. Yeah. Um, Man up. I mean, I if you're really serious about holiness, you won't let your pride get in the way of putting sin to death and coming alive to righteousness. Right. And so there, there's very few men. If you find a man who's 40 ish, <clears throat> there's not one in the world who doesn't know that porn's a thing and doesn't know that you as a younger man are struggling with it or struggling with some sort of sexual sin. It's not going to shock anyone anymore. A generation mm-hmm. ago. Yeah, they would have been shocked and wouldn't have known what to do, etc. Today, I think most guys in that, you know, 40 to 50 age range, we, we understand, we get it. And, um, you know, I think there's lots of guys who are willing to to offer their their help, their guidance to to younger men. So right. never let pride stop you mm-hmm. from from holiness. It's the most absurd thing to let sin keep you from battling sin. It, it's absurd. Yeah. It's satanic, which is exactly what it is. Right. You're just yeah. you're, you're giving yourself over to that sin. And I think it's really good as well to just focus on Romans one a little bit. Just read the passage and see how sin escalates, how small sins lead to bigger sins, lead to bigger mm-hmm. sins, lead to God just saying, OK, then mm-hmm. then we're done. I mean, you're on your own now. Um, right. And th- th- there is a sense in which sin advances to such a degree that God kind of just washes his hands of you and you need to be you need to be just very very um conscientious before the lord to put sin to death to to confess your sin um but understand you can't sin infinitely and god gives that as an illustration in in romans one and i would say the the sins that that come at the end of that list of sins as things get worse and worse he leads towards sins of homosexuality and um exchanging natural for unnatural. And I ask you, if you're looking at pornography, are you looking at homosexual acts? Because if you're looking at two people in that in that act on the screen, you are looking at another man, you are looking at another woman, depending on your gender. So, you know, there is a homosexual component to it. And you just need right. to, to understand that the true depth of the depravity you're expressing hmm. in looking at porn. Yeah, it's it was, not a small sin just because it's a common sin doesn't mean it's just like a minor thing. The fact that every other young man or every other young woman struggles with it, that's a material. That doesn't, that has nothing to do with how serious right. it is. And that's, I think where, where someone's mind could go to justify that. That's like, you know, I guess everyone struggles with this, you know, yeah. my struggle is okay. And that's kind of what the world has told us up to, you know, it's been just, you know, it's great and it's right. acceptable. It's healthy, whatever. Right. That's because our basis for comparison for our sin is not. <clears throat> Christ, which it should be, we look at other people and we're not, our, our comparison is, well, at least I'm not as sinful as the other guy. Right. That's not God's basis of comparison. He's saying, look at me, look at Christ, be holy as I am holy. Um, you know, Isaiah didn't see this great vision of God and fall on his face and say, well, at least I'm 
holier than the other guy. He saw right. God and he was undone. Woe is me. I'm cursed because I've seen, seen God. Um, you know, you can't look at other people and say, at least I'm better than the other guy. God, at least I'm better than him. Right. I mean, that's not, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not going to do it. <laughs> okay. Maybe moving from porn culture, we can get into the broader sexual ethic of our time too. Um, I noticed on your, uh, your website there, chalice.com, this is going back probably two years ago. You reviewed uh, Nancy Piercy's book. Yeah. Love that body, which yeah, is a fantastic book, breaks all this kind of stuff down. Um, maybe you want to talk about, I mean, we, we touched on this before, kind of the sexual ethic, how that's progressed. Maybe talk about uh, what Piercy brings out in that book and uh, the Christian ethic and the Christian worldview and the Christian story that can uh, that can counteract and, and mm. supersede the, the secular one. Well, it's been a couple of years since I read the book, so I'm yeah. not sure I can outline her her <laughs> argument. Yeah, yeah. Your, your wisdom based on uh, what you've read from that book, partly. Too. Yeah, about what specifically? The issue of homosexuality? Yeah, well, like, how do we, yeah like if you're trying to talk to your kids about uh, the, these tough issues and and they see it in the culture and, and they're trying to tell their worldview and their story, like the culture's very much, yeah. uh, you know, everywhere, like we say. Um, yeah. What is the biblical response to that, like on, on sexuality? Because all these things connect, yeah. right? like porn culture, transgender, homosexuality, abortion. Yeah. All these do. types of things. Like what's what's the biblical answer to, to those questions? Well, yeah, I think it, you got to begin at the beginning and most of the answers you need are in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, if you understand the first three chapters of the Bible and you understand them well, the rest of the Bible just makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. When you, you really nail those down. And so you start with the creative act of God. God himself created us. Therefore, God owns us and God God wrote the owner's manual for us. He's yeah. the one who describes our function and all that uh, right there. And Genesis uh, one and two in the creation account, you've got God created the male and female. There's your answer to transgenderism. And he clearly created them to complement one another, each to have distinct roles that would be complementary to one another. And so that undoes a lot of the, the cultural nonsense. He created them in the image of God, um, which undoes abortion. You can't create, you can't, kill something that's been made in God's yep. image. Yep. Um, so yeah, if you start your kids at the beginning and you just keep reading that and explaining that and teaching that, and then leading to the fall into sin, man, immediately turning on woman, pain and childbearing, all those things, you see that even sexuality, the, the body was deeply affected by the fall. Um, and then just to parents, don't be afraid to have these conversations with your kids. Don't be afraid to teach your kids what homosexuality is. I mean, obviously in an age appropriate way, um, kids trust their parents in, in general. You have a, a a real voice into your kid's life. And so um, teach them, train them well, and uh, hmm. expect that if you train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's not mm -hmm. a rock solid promise, um, huh. but it's, it's a proverb and you can expect that it's generally true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You were on, um, on Tyrannus Hall too, not so not too long ago. I'm not sure how long they held on the episode before they released it, but uh, um, with Bill Young and Winston wasn't uh, I guess on that uh, podcast with no, you, but, but um, so you talked about, well, I guess he asked you a question and maybe I'll, I'll paraphrase it. It's not in a book. So I, you know, I need a, a paraphrase transcript of the sure. podcast right. to, uh, to, to recollect it. But um, he asked you something like, uh, what do you think is, is one of the biggest problems facing our, facing our church? And you said something like um, the, the narrative surrounding um, sexual identity and, and just this, this sexual ethic in our, in our culture is, um, it's, it's hard to, for people to, um, 
I guess, bring a Christian narrative to somebody who gives them a narrative or a story um, that, you know, they're gay or, you know, so they have a friend who comes to them and says, well, you know what, I'm gay and you have to deal with that. And, and this is, it's a, it's a very worldly, worldly approach to the, the story of how that came to be or, you know, how those desires, you know, kind of grew. But um, maybe, yeah, maybe you could uh, elaborate a little bit on the on the biblical narrative, and then you know what what can we do to yeah. better understand how to deal with situations where where we're faced with like a, a real life uh, yeah. confrontation. So I think what I what I was saying there <laughs> is that we train our kids in abstract information, which is fine. I mean, we give them the biblical mm-hmm. data, the biblical information, and that's well and good. So God created male and female. And there is complementarity there, all that uh, homosexuality is wrong and here's why. And that's all that's all biblical data. But when a friend comes and says, I'm gay, I'm not sure that we've equipped our kids as well to respond to that. Because now it's not just some abstract evil person. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is a friend. This is somebody they love and who loves them. Um, the same can be true of abortion. It's one thing to say, you know, I've, I've trained you in the five steps to take or the what's true uh, about abortion. But it's another thing when your friend comes and says, you know, if my parents find out I'm going to k- get kicked out of my house and my boyfriend doesn't like me anymore. And, you know, he says he's going to leave me if I don't get an abortion and all that kind of stuff. So, again, we equip our kids, I think, with the answers but when it actually comes to having to deal with it in a very personal, non-abstract way, I think is when our kids falter. And so when right. you read deconversion stories, people who were Christians and now are no longer Christians, I think at least half the time, probably more, very quickly you find out that somewhere in the family is something like homosexuality. And they've had to choose between their kid and their faith, or they've had to choose between a friendship and their faith. Right. And that's, I think, where we need to to equip our kids. I don't know that that looks a whole lot different, to be honest. They still need the information. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to, to to help them have that that pity, I suppose, toward other people and that that steadfastness that they can they can express love for another person that that homosexuals are not the enemy. They're not the enemy of the church. They are people to be loved and to have the gospel shared with them and to hopefully come to a saving faith in, in, in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can make people into the enemy when really they're the mission field. Um, and so our kids need to understand that, that we don't need to push them away right? Uh, in terms of we can't interact anymore, which is what the world is saying. If you're gay, Christians are going to shove you away. We shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. We should still be interacting, still be loving, still be reaching out with the gospel. Right. So how do we, as I guess, as parents, it's, um, it's about understanding what it, you know, is to come, I guess, like, um, what's, what's prevalent. Um, the, the world seems to be pushing, you know, I think we're past just pushing, you know, the gay agenda and now we're into many things, transgender and just yeah. people, kids, kids thinking that they're unsure about who they are and, um, and needing guidance, um, but then refusing the guidance because it comes from the internet. Um, I guess it's just, it just it is parents need to be aware of what's coming and then I guess tackle some of those scenarios in their head. But is there something that the church can do or that, or parents can do to kind of prepare themselves for a scenario like that? I'm just thinking in, in, um, like in a school scenario, um, where you think, okay, well there has been this and this, um, um, 
that's been a prevalent issue in our school or in a, yeah. in a, a sports setting or something like that. Yeah. Um, is it just a matter of thinking it through and saying, okay, well, this is kind of how you would deal with it and kind of teach your kid or is there something that we can. Yeah. I mean, I think of, that the keys are the same as they've always been, which is to teach our kids the word of God, to uh, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so that involves the church. Kids are in church. They're learning their Sunday. They're hearing their two sermons a week. Mm -hmm. um, they're being trained by hopefully their parents through family devotions and other things. And then um, hopefully through the church as well, through catechism or some other kind of formal training. And then of course, in the Canadian reformed world, you got the advantage of the schools where they're also reaffirming that Christian worldview. And yet hopefully always, always pushing to kids. Have you personally turn to Christ. Have you personally, is this, just make sure this isn't a family faith. This isn't a cultural faith. This isn't a community faith. This is your faith. You personally believe hmm. in the Lord Jesus. You've put your faith in him because right. we're, we're good Calvinists here. We understand that once somebody's truly come to faith, they will never fall away from the faith. I mean, they may backslide for a time, but we know that, um, that God does preserve those he loves. Mm. And so um, he doesn't He doesn't promise to preserve people who are just good church kids to keep them in the church or to keep them in the faith. He promises to preserve the people who are his, who have put their faith in him, um, who have become his, his, his people. So yeah, we need to, I think, just be constantly pushing that with our kids and make sure they personally come to Christ. Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I just want to drill down a little more on this this issue of of yeah, particularly just being gay and whatnot. It's often framed in uh, the world will come at it from a secular perspective that um, they have compassion on their side, and it's the compassionate thing yeah. to let people um, to live as they are and to choose to you know love as love is is often the slogan, right? Yeah. How does the church? Um, answer that and, and how does the biblical view support a compassionate but still um, upholding the biblical standard when it comes to that stuff sure i mean that's where the the calvinistic doctrines start with total depravity for a reason total depravity is the great leveling ground we all are totally depraved that's yep. not just uh that's not just the 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 people God will never set his his sights on who are totally depraved. That's that's it's humanity. All yeah. That's all of us. We're all on our faces before God with nothing. Um, and so, uh, you know, we with that as our starting ground, we can now look with true concern upon other people and to know that um, total depravity means they will do things they think are very good, but are actually very bad. Their morality will be completely off base because they are completely off base. Their, their morality will be off kilter because their very hearts, their very natures are off kilter. And so um, what we cannot do is allow them to define morality. We have to define morality according to God's word. Um, and God has defined morality. He's the one who created us, as we said before. He's the one who's given us his law. He's the one who's told us how we use our bodies. He's the one who's given us our identity. And so much of sexuality today comes down to identity. There's been this big switch over the last few decades um, where it's sexuality is not just what I do. Sexuality is who I am. And that's been the massive switch um, that a lot of Christians are still kind of catching up on. So when we say 
uh, homosexuality is wrong. A lot of Christians are saying homosexual behavior is wrong, yeah. but a lot of non-Christians are receiving that and saying my identity Personal is homosexuality. Yeah. So you're saying I'm wrong on a deep fundamental level. And I mean, in a sense we are, but we're using the same words sometimes in very different ways. And so we need to understand that sexuality in the wider culture is tied up with identity. It's mm -hmm. um, sexuality is my deepest self, according to worldly mm -hmm. thinking right now. My truest self is revealed by my sexual preferences and sexual activity. Um, Christians can say, no, our identity is we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. That's your identity. You're, you're in Adam, you're in, in Christ. Um, and if you're not one in one, you're in the other. And so the most loving thing I can do is not affirm your inadamness is to call you to be in Christ. Yeah. Uh, so true love is not affirming sinful behavior or even sinful identity. It's calling people away from that. To it's a higher calling standard, them, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's calling them to, to accept the offer of the gospel, which Christ gives to, to repent and believe and be saved. Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. really interesting how we landed in a, in a, in a time when, um, one specific trait of who you are or how how you uh, interact with the world defines you mm -hmm. um, almost completely. I so, think that blends really well with uh, social yeah. justice. and Totally. Yeah. yeah. But just on that point, like you read Romans 1 and it makes sense because everything eventually lands at the sexual, doesn't it? I mean, mm -hmm. even there too, it's, it's all these sins and they kind of crescendo into this exchanging natural for unnatural passions. Yeah. Um, and I guess it was just, alive in the Roman culture too. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, so you just see it that, um, there's there's something in our sexuality. I'm not saying the world is right here, but there is a mm. certain way we can show our hatred of God by misusing our sexuality or show our submission to God by using our sexuality according to God's law, God's standards um, that we can't through through certain other things, you know? Yeah. And so there is a sense in which if we ultimately want to shake our fist at the sky, which all of humanity, sinful humanity is doing, we can do that through our sexuality in a way we we can't in other ways. Hmm. Yeah, and I think yeah, it, it touched on it really good. And I think it kind of goes back to Nancy Piercy's book too, because it's yeah, it's it's equating the your identity and is your sexuality, um, yeah, and your whole being is right. Where really it's it's you're defined by how God created you in in His image. Is it is that a Freudian thing? Yeah, it's certainly energy. flow yeah. out of there. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Again, Freud was the one who grounded sexuality in identity mm -hmm. um, or vice versa. And um, he's also the one who just made everything sexual, right? He defined yeah. the stages of childhood. Every stage of humanity is Based defined sex. by sex, yeah. by sexuality. Yeah. Previous to that, that wasn't the case. But he was the one who traced all of human development according to sexual interest, sexual activity. And that's so deeply embedded in our culture now. I think we, even as Christians, we have trouble seeing it as Freudian rather than biblical. I mean, we're yeah. just so accustomed to everything being being sexualized. Fascinating. Yeah. 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 You touched on identities there, and that kind of gets into uh, what we might talk about next year, I guess. Uh, a while back, you did a review uh, for this book called Cynical Theories, which touched on uh, you know critical theory, and all these various identity groups and, and cultural Marxism and, and social justice, capitalist, capital J kind yeah. of thing. Um, do you see, and this might be more for like the American audience, but I think it might be here in Canada too. Um, do you see that sort of philosophy, maybe explain it first, I should say. And then do you see it coming into the church at all? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. So cynical theories is not written by Christians. In fact, it's written by atheists um, who have no use for God, no use for the church. Um, but they are classical liberals, which is liberalism, of course, being that philosophy that really underlines a lot of Western society. It was born out of a Christian worldview um, and just talks about the separation of church and state being essential and just the freedom of humanities, freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, all of that. And so they're coming from that perspective and they're looking at this new social justice mania in the world and evaluating it through that lens. So I said earlier, this is a, a time for some strange bedfellows in society. I think this is where Christians and classical liberals like that can say, all right, we're, we have a common foe and the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so you go after them through your worldview. We'll go after them through our worldview and hopefully we'll, we'll uh, find some commonality. We can at least help each other, even if yep. we don't agree on, on ultimate matters. And so their concern is that this thing called social justice. Now there's a lot of different names for this thing, but social justice is probably the most common. Um, which is essentially like a postmodern slash Marxist uh, mashup, two different philosophical streams that have mashed together and are influencing society now. And so you see it probably most prominently right now, either in areas of sexuality or race. And I think just in the cultural conversation today, you see it most in race when you hear things about identity politics or whiteness or white fragility, all mm -hmm. these, these are all kind of pointers toward that philosophy. And it's, it's essentially postmodern in that it, it doubts that there's really objective truth. Uh, all truth is subjectivized. So your truth is different from my truth. Mm -hmm. And more especially the, the truth of uh, somebody who's in the oppressed class is different and better than the, the truth of somebody who's in the oppressor class. So it's a, it's a mashup of postmodernism with Marxism. Marxism, of course, is dividing people into groups and then setting those groups upon one another, again, based on who's oppressed and who's the oppressor. Um, classical Marxism was just doing that in terms of economics, the rich against the poor, the working class against the um, bourgeoisie. But then um, today it's been divided into many different classifications. So white against black and uh, male against female and straight against gay and all of that. Yeah. So. Right. Do you see that as a challenge for the church today? Because uh, you talk about social justice, again, capital S, capital J, right? which uh, like the social justice historically, just, you know, lowercase yeah. has been something the church has always been in favor of, you know, defending the poor and, and caring for right. the sick and the downtrodden. Um, do you see uh, any risk for Christians getting caught up in that sort of thing? Yeah. So again, social justice, as you said, is, is depending how you define it, it can be a very good thing or a very bad thing. Yeah. And if you want to understand it just very basically, it's justice. So doing what's right or, you know, just taking all the proverbs, for example, yeah. and applying them in the social sphere, which is which is a good thing. I mean, that's what God calls us to do. Mm -hmm. um, as Christians, we should be representing others. We should be defending others. You have great legacy of people like William Carey or William Wilberforce and um, many other Christians who did great things that you today could consider social justice. That's not a term they would have used, but yeah. we can apply it to them. Um, this other social justice is totally different in every possible way. And so there's a confusion of terms there. Um, I do see this, this cynical uppercase, if you will, social justice impacting the church 
a little bit. I'm not as concerned as maybe some people are, um, but I think most of us are operating anecdotally. And so we're kind of looking at our own church, at our own um, sort of social sphere and just gauging the whole church by what we see very locally. So yeah. mm-hmm. um, I am concerned about issues like race, which, you know, depending on your, your church denomination may be very prominent in the life of the church. It may really not be much of an issue in the church, depending if your church is very diverse or or non-diverse. Um, but yeah, I think within the church, if there's people bringing the assumptions of critical theory or um, that kind of social justice into the church, that's going to be problematic. Because again, it, it says that there's knowledge that only certain people can have. It's going to say um, objective knowledge, for example, knowledge drawn out of the Bible, yes. and you're saying this is true for all people of all times, that actually can't be the case, and so on. And and so people will be, um, I think, operating under some very different and very unhealthy assumptions. So, yeah, mm. I'm, I'm concerned. And I think over the next few years, we'll see just how much of a concern there ought to be. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Interesting. You, yeah, you do see it a bit on the race issue, I think. Like a lot of, yeah. uh, you, talk, you mentioned white fragility before too. There's a lot of... Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say a lot, but there's a bit of white guilt sort of, I think, trickling in potentially. Yeah. Seen some discussion online about that too. Yeah. And see, part of the problem is there's little bits we can identify with behind all of these things. And so when people are saying something like white fragility, according to the book, Robin (laughs) DiAngelo, who coined the term, like there's a very specific meaning behind white fragility and it's completely, totally tied in to critical theory, social justice and so on. However, I think all of us could think of a version of white fragility where we're like, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I can be defensive if somebody accuses me of racism because I don't want to be racist. And okay. I, mm-hmm. I maybe do feel like, uh, yeah, I could, you could accuse me of that. And maybe I have had some, I have done some racist things in the past or something. So, uh, so that's where I think it gets tricky. Not everything in every term or not everything people are saying is, is all the way wrong. Um, there really has been mistreatment of black people by white people in America, obviously, is where it's talked about most. But even here in Canada, there has been some. And so I think not denying that while also not ceding the ground of this evil philosophy is or ideology is, is the important thing. Yeah, mm. that's a tricky uh, line to ride for sure. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I, I mean, we as Canadians can content ourselves like the Underground Railroad ended here in Canada. That's a that's it's a good, pretty good thing, legacy. you know. Yeah. yeah, it's a good legacy. Canada doesn't have the racial history of the US. Yet we do have a concerning racial history in some ways, and I don't think we need to pretend like that's not the case. Oh, and so as Christians, yeah. we we need to be people of the truth. Um so to to look for the truth and to deal with that truth well and even thinking about could there be things that are existing in society today? I think we should be absolutely fine with that. And so we don't want to be the people who are overreacting and just shutting down the conversation yeah. altogether. However, we just can't cede ground to an evil ideology. Totally. Right? Yeah, you can set aside the critical theory, but still think critically, <laughs> right. perhaps, about race. Yeah, right. I think and every, the, the big yeah, problem with social justice, critical theory, all of that, is it's meant to divide, not unite. It really has no mechanism of uniting people. It yeah. only ever divides. And as it goes on, it divides people into smaller and smaller groups. And it just constantly divides and then sets those groups on one another. So that is like the 
farthest thing possible from Christianity, which does the exact opposite, Unites. which is brings us together. You mm -hmm. are in Christ. Your fundamental identity is in Christ. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. There's no male. There's no female. That's not to say all those things were eradicated. You were still in a sense Greek. You were still in a sense Jewish. You are still male and female, but those things don't matter in the sense that they aren't, you're not to divide over those things. There's real right. unity in diversity. And so Christianity has the answers of a church that is diverse, a church that um, is also united, not despite uh, diversity, but in totally. our diversity. Yeah, we have, yeah. We have the fundamental, mm -hmm. the basis that, that you right. answer. Yeah. Right. And that's where hopefully the local church in a place like Southern Ontario, that is so diverse. Yeah. Um, hopefully you can look around the church and see unity in diversity. We as the local mm -hmm. church should be the display of what God is doing, um, which is where it's so exciting that the world is coming to Canada. The world is coming here and we can, um, often they're coming with the gospel already. And yeah. if not, we can reach them with the gospel and we can build these local church communities that display all these different forms of of diversity and while the mm -hmm. world is bickering and dividing into smaller and smaller groups hopefully we're uniting and becoming bigger and bigger churches yeah that's a good right. way to put it the yeah world, i guess the if world is coming to canada yeah <laughs> i guess if it's not um so alive in our church and that that maybe doesn't become a, a prevalent issue um i guess it's still something that church as a whole needs to be aware of that it's in the world and then how to react to it in the world like in, in politics and in just the social sphere that everyone lives in right? yeah absolutely but I challenge a church that is in a very diverse culture like our own. And if there's not some kind of diversity in the church, now we're not just mm -hmm. looking for diversity to make ourselves feel good, but I would say that's prevalent you, in politics. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but if you are in a diverse, a, a culturally or ethnically diverse area and your church is not diverse at all or right. very, very little, I think that's a time for some soul searching and some good questions. Why is this not the case? So if right. you're, a Chinese Baptist church and you're preaching a Mandarin, it would not be a great surprise that you only draw in Chinese Mandarin speakers. Right. But if you're an English speaking church and you're established and you live in a diverse area, then hopefully you're displaying that. Because if not, chances are there's something going on within the church that's mm -hmm. either not welcoming people in or not reaching out to them at all, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this ties in good because I wanted to get into that into a, in a mailbag question. Uh, Go this was my own question, but I this ties in well. So I, I wanted to ask, because um, you're familiar with our Canadian Reformed context a little bit, and you grew up in it, and you now are um, Reformed Baptist and part of a different world than we are. Yeah. I mean, and you're not Dutch. Right. So <laughs> um, I think the, the Canadian Reformed Church is, um, I think it's pretty well known that we're a Dutch community, and that's where we came from. And and still, I guess, um, we're, crit we're critiqued or criticized for being ethnocentric, ethnocentric, heavily Dutch, sure. Heavily right. Dutch and, and only focused on the Dutch people. And so I'm just, I was just curious what you would, what would you would think about, uh, pretty much that point? Like, um, what, what is something that we can do to, to see beyond our, our Dutch traditions, our Dutch community and and to i mean i know what the, the church the doors are open but yeah um beyond that right something so 
I think the the experience of the Dutch churches would match the experience of many other ethnic churches mm-hmm. in Toronto in that it makes perfect sense that Dutch people moved to Canada and formed Dutch churches. That's just mm-hmm. the way it goes. You have common culture, often common language, um, common theology, all of that. And so when I see a Chinese Baptist church or a Filipino church. Yeah, that's, I drove through Mennonite country yesterday, Amish you, country. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah very right. interesting. Yeah. You expect it to be um, monocultural. Mm-hmm. For a time. Now, right. over time, what happens is um, the, the people now master the language here instead of the language the, from the, the homeland. And the the kids typically become more Canadian. I mean, Canada mm-hmm. has this amazing way of bringing people in. And within a generation or two, it, it just we're all pretty similar mm-hmm. <laughs> to one another. A lot of those cultural distinctions become, become somewhat blurred. Um, and so I think if a church is let's say, I don't know, 70 years, as would be the case for a lot of the Canadian Reformed churches, 70 years in and is still very monocultural. That's where I think some soul searching would be in order to say, Mm -hmm. well, why? Um, Why are we not seeing other people come in? Is that because we don't really want them? Is that because there's something so, so unique about our culture that it drives other people off or doesn't make them feel welcome? There could be any number of things. And I don't, I I certainly wouldn't speak to that. I don't have the answer for for the Canadian Reform I was going to try to make them speak to that. (laughs) But I do think you can, you can have the door open and still not be welcoming. Right. Um, And you can give people... Maybe the thing is, a, a Chinese church doesn't know how Chinese it is, and a Dutch church doesn't know how Dutch it is, and a, a Nigerian church doesn't know how Nigerian it is until it brings in other people. And those other people can help identify some of those quirks or some of those things that make you feel uncomfortable. And so right. maybe an example would be in a church, in, in the Dutch world, obviously family is huge. Families of a, a big thing. That's part of the joy of the tradition. It's part of the brilliance of the tradition. But if you're coming in as, let's say, uh, a single mom with a, a messy divorce in your past, and maybe you've got a, a child from yet another dad, can you come into that church and feel confident and feel accepted? Or mm-hmm. some of the messaging such that you're, you're never really going to be looked at as an equal here because of some of the stuff that's in your past. I don't know if that's a good example, but I just think there's ways churches can think they're doing the right thing and not. And I mean, trust me, we're asking this in our own church. We've Mm -hmm. had certain people from ethnic, certain ethnic groups have not thrived in our church. They've come and gone. Right. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it about our church that is not welcoming those Christians. Mm-hmm. We, we, we know they're saved, but somehow they don't ever settle into our church and feel part of the life of is, the church. Yeah. Is what it a is cultural it that, clash or is it, is it right. yeah, something to identify? Right. And so yeah. for a while we had um, quite a lot of uh, Latin Americans coming to our church and we had a lot of trouble keeping them in the church. They would come for a while and then mm-hmm. leave. And I, I started asking them, what is it? And just found as I talked to them, they found us very unfriendly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're a very friendly church, mm-hmm. but it was just, a, I think, a cultural misunderstanding. So I started observing this awesome Cuban couple that, that came to our church. And now, like I was raised in the Dutch Reformed world. So you come to church and you head right to your seat and you sit down and you just start thinking about the sermon. You start reading the Bible, you start praying, whatever. Like you you come to church and mm-hmm. it's all business. And you, mm-hmm. you 
you, you socialize afterwards. Right. But I watched these people come in and it would take them like 45 minutes to get from the front door to the pew. Why? Because <laughs> they were hugging everybody. They were kissing everybody. They were just welcoming everybody. Yeah. They had to go around and greet every person every week. Right. Well, no wonder they feel that I'm cold. Yeah. I'm just being really, really Dutch or really, really Canadian. The reverence that we've put. Yeah. Yeah. Which is totally cultural. There's nothing Mm -hmm. in the Bible that says what they're doing is right or wrong or what I'm doing is Mm -hmm. right or wrong. But I realize if I want to welcome Cuban people into the church, I need to be a little more Cuban Mm -hmm. and I can do that. It's just a cultural preference or a cultural blindedness that's keeping me from welcoming them. And so I realize if I've if there's if Cuban people coming here, Latin American people coming here, they're just bringing in a different set of cultural lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean we need to change the worship of the church. Doesn't mean we need to change our Bible. Doesn't mean we need to stop preaching. Like none of the, none of the elements of the church need to change, but right. just some of those, those non-essentials, some of those things the Bible doesn't speak to. Right. Oh, we can change that. Yeah. That's something yeah. to work on. For no, sure. That's actually that's dovetails good. super well with my next question. All right. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm really excited. Transition the chair. Here. Let's go. Yeah, well, okay, you talk about the cultural differences. And uh, like a few years ago, you traveled all around the world and uh, just observed believers and, and different practices around the world. Um, there's a lot of discussion right now within our churches um, about like the Psalms and the hymns and the balance in between those. And um, how should we treat those? And should we use more our Psalms like hindering our missional endeavors? That's a big question a lot of people are asking. Um, I guess in your experience, maybe in your own church and then also throughout your travels in the world, um, are other churches singing the Psalms as well? Um, have you seen that be a hindrance or is it a blessing? What have you observed that way? Keeping in mind, you're getting a Psalms book right after this. right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I've seen an interesting little thing happening in the Baptist, Reformed Baptist world lately, which is starting to sing the Psalms. And what's cool is that no people think they're mm. being innovative here. They're like, hey, uh-huh. nobody's ever thought of this before. Let's sing the Psalms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all oh, these Dutch people are dying I got you inside. Beat, yeah. yeah, we never <laughs> stopped. <for> years. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think there has been in the maybe slightly wider reformed world, like some people realizing, oh yeah, God gave us 150 songs. We should probably yeah. at least sing those. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bare minimum. So I, I think that's awesome. And, yeah. you know, at our church, we try and sing at least one psalm every week. And um, there's there's beauty there. I think my observation would be, I don't think it really matters if you're singing, okay, sing good songs. Let's, let's yeah, cover yeah. that. Yeah. But I don't mm-hmm. think it matters if you're singing psalms or hymns, you're, what the balance is, whether you're doing it with a great band or with an organ or, you know, just one guitar or whatever it is. I just don't know that people are coming to church and making decisions on that. Not people who are truly interested True. Mm-hmm. in the gospel. I just don't know that that's driving a lot of people away. Like, ah, they've only got an organ. I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of our thinking there comes out of like Bible Belt America, where people have 50 or 100 different churches to choose from. And there's like this arms race over who can put out the best band there and who can have the Mm -hmm. loudest music and the best music and the freshest music and all of that. And so you're, you got people shifting from church to church based on programs. I mean, that's not entirely fair, but that was the the church growth movement, right? Mm -hmm. They realized afterwards, very few people came to faith through it. It was just a lot of cultural Christians kind of shifting, especially from little churches to big ones. Joel Olstein-ish. Uh, yeah kind of yeah i mean that was prosperity the whole, gospel and you know yeah or even i mean even people not preaching the full prosperity gospel but it really was just a consumer christianity mm-hmm. yeah so i think what people are are 
care more for is convictions. And yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. just people who are godly and showing in their lives and showing in their showing in their lives that they take their faith seriously and showing in their worship that they take God seriously. We don't yeah. need people joking around and singing dumb songs. We, most people have most churches have one service a week and they sing five songs, yeah. songs, let's say yeah. you got five songs a week. And that's probably all most people are going to sing and hear. Yeah. So good. Make sure they're good songs. Like don't waste any of yeah. those five songs. You got 90 minutes once a week to do a service. Make every moment of that service count. I mean, just drench it in the Bible. Read the Old Testament, read yeah. the New Testament, preach a solid sermon, have long prayers. I mean, just give people 90 minutes of good conviction-based scripture and, yeah, totally. and Christianity. And I just don't think the rest matters. The best psalm I heard all year was in uh, Lusaka, Zambia, a rendition of, I believe it was Psalm 23. Is that a children's choir? Nope. It was just the church, okay. just singing and just... Yeah, they can I sing, mean, man. It was so good. unreal. It was yeah. just... And I mean, it was just them singing, but it was just so beautiful. And mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it wasn't in English, so I didn't... I, I just had to listen. And that's a joy too, right? Yeah. To be able to just listen sometimes. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Huh. Singing Psalms. Singing Psalms, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's God's playlist, so yeah. let's use it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't think, uh, you know, our Dutch um, rhythm is going to wow anybody really, but... Uh, but okay, yeah. we're, you know, <laughs> we're better, sings, nobody yeah. sings louder than the Canadian Reformed. Oh, yeah? And, oh, yeah? I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe the, the Dutch churches in general. We try to sing over the organ. But, right, yeah. Well, probably, probably the African church has got us beat. No, they okay. sing very differently, right? They yeah. sing in parts and typically they'll be singing in parts and stuff. So you don't get the same level of volume oh, okay. as yeah, a yeah, Dutch yeah. church mm-hmm. who's, I mean, the, you, you guys know your songs. And, you know, getting back to technology, there's there's benefit in having a psalm book or a psalter or a hymnal versus not having one. Yeah. The mm-hmm. benefit is that this is your collection and you're only going to sing out of this collection yeah and that means you get to know those songs very well you start to commit them to memory if you yeah. don't have that songbook and therefore don't have that collection you can hear a song on thursday on christian radio and be like oh yeah let's listen to that let's sing that on sunday yeah, yeah. throw it on the powerpoint and then mm-hmm. right yeah. and you <laughs> sing it for two weeks and you forget about it and you move on and people never get to know their songs yeah mm-hmm. and so you know um part of the reason i think the canadian reform sings so well is because you have a defined playlist and you yeah. sing only those songs. However, I'll be cheeky here and say the other reason you <laughs> sing so well is because you don't have a lot of new converts coming in who don't know how to sing and don't know the songs. Yeah, that's true. And so a church that sings too well yeah. may reflect a lack of evangelism. You don't have people who sing badly because they're just learning how to sing. That's so we yeah, could okay, use a few, point. we could use different cultures who know how to sing. Yeah. So, right. yeah. Oh man, that's like yeah, producer we, Ben there. So we got laughing his head off. Love we it. got uh, <laughs> more mailbags for you. All right, yeah, we're, we're out of time here for you. Okay, yeah, we're doing we're good. Well. There. We got 10 minutes or something. Yep, something like um, that. Oh, do you want to ask a COVID question? Sure, yeah, why not? Let's get the COVID response. Mm. Uh, John MacArthur has been super outspoken on this issue. Uh, he's uh, got a couple legal battles with the state of California. We're shooting this on the 22nd of September, I believe. Not um, in California. Not in California, definitely not. Um, yeah, do you have any... I know you written earlier in the pandemic on it a bit. I haven't seen anything super lately. Um, yeah, just give us your thoughts on it and and the MacArthur situation and how should Christians respond. Yeah, just given we're you know, many months into this thing now, given the science and the stats we've, we've seen, how would you respond? So there's part of me that cares what MacArthur does and part of me that doesn't. <laughs> and with all due respect, and I, I, 
appreciate MacArthur as much as anyone else, yep. I assure you. He's in California, in America. Yep. Mm -hmm. We are in Ontario, in Canada. Yeah, different situations. These are different situations and different mm -hmm. worlds. So um, what he chooses to do in California, I think has no real bearing on what we choose to do in Ontario, Canada, Southern Ontario, Canada. And I mean, just consider Gavin Newsom, governor in California, is keeping churches from um, from being able to do what other organizations can do. Whereas here in Canada, yeah. churches have more rights to do than anyone else. So there's nowhere else. Mm -hmm. when we're, we're aware that when we gather as a church on Sunday, we are the biggest gathering around. There's nowhere else where 115, 120 people, that's just 30% capacity. Um, there's nowhere else that people are gathering in that size. Now, I do believe the church is pre-political. So I don't think the government has a lot of authority over the church. Um, you know, if you picture a Venn diagram with government and mm -hmm. church, oh, there's yes. there's maybe a little bit of overlap there, right? And matters of public health would be one of those things. I don't think it's the church's responsibility to create a public response to a, a pandemic. Yep. Um, so it, in my perspective, you know, we look at what the government says and we grant them the same kind of respect we'd want our kids to have to us or, you know, whoever we're in authority over, we'd want that kind of kind of respect, kind of submission to their authority. Um, yeah. And if and when a time comes when um, we can see we're actually being persecuted or actually rights are being taken from us or rights are being given to other organizations and not to churches, I think it becomes a very different yeah. conversation. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the problem with the conversation overall is A, Canadians are listening to Americans a little bit too much in a totally different context yeah. and culture. And um, B, we're, we're, we've made it too much a, an internet-based conversation and too little of just a local church. So yep. I don't care what any other local church does. I'm an elder at my church. I'm talking to the other elders there. We're talking to the congregation. Here's what we as a local church are doing. And I think if every Christian just kind of stay in their lane, every church just stay in their lane yep. and say, you know what? We've, we've searched the scriptures. We, we've looked at our church order or whatever it is. This is what we're choosing to do. And uh, we trust that God's going to bless us in it because God loves us and he's, he yeah. loves to bless us. And we're operating out of our understanding of scripture and operating a good conscience. Yeah. I think this whole thing would be going a whole lot better. Yeah. At maybe. least the, the conversation in the Christian world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it can be spicy at times for sure. Yeah. But, um, do, do you see um, Dr. Joe Boot has written a bunch on this uh, topic. He's talked about statism. Um, do you see that as a risk at all in this whole pandemic response? No, no, I don't. No, I'm not uh -huh. concerned. I mean, I, I haven't read um, what what Joe was saying. Um, no, I'm not particularly concerned. And maybe maybe I'm naive there. Like I'm willing to understand that maybe yeah. I'm naive. Uh, Joe's worldview would be quite a bit different from mine. His theology is quite a bit different. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't sh I, I think there would be a we'd have a different starting point there. And so, okay, if we're getting very abstract, sure. yeah. then I can say like, okay, maybe some statism, but I mean, I, I know who our premier is and I'm, I'm not that concerned that he's a, a statist, that he's, no. he's trying yeah. to gain power to himself that he's never going to give back. And so yeah. I, I think there's this abstract sense where you could do that. But I, I mean, I've, I've met with quite a lot of, or had conversations with or been part of conversations with quite a number of people in the the wider in, in um, provincial 
politics, um, members of parliament, provincial parliament, and other people, and health tables and stuff. I've been impressed at how many are believers and how many understand church issues and how many are wanting to protect the rights of the church. So I don't feel that concern. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, cool. I feel like, yeah, Doug Ford's just a backyard dad, you know, beer in his hand, yeah. telling the yahoos to get off the lawn, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not concerned about him. I'm just not. And maybe yeah. I, maybe I should be, but I just, I'm just not concerned that he's out to grab, grab power. I, if it was a different provincial government, I might be thinking about it differently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess, I guess the only counter to that would be that he's possibly imbibe this whole status sort of growing status idea sure but i mean i wouldn't know much sure. more than that to, to dig it, deeper it could be yeah and yeah i mean i mean that's 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 possible yeah all right go next you want another mailbag oh man i'm i'm like almost out i got uh i got my uh, canadian reformed church question answered that was, so that was your big um one. yeah i think we, we kind of wanted to touch on woke culture but i think we kind of did with uh I got one with then. the Maybe. cancel um, culture and stuff. Yeah. Just, uh, just personally for you on your background. So you, you obviously rose to, uh, I wouldn't say notoriety, prominence. popularity, prominence. prominence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, via the blog. But, uh, you said you're an elder at your church. Uh, it's kind of a part-time thing at this point for you. Right. Um, how does it work for you guys? You're also a pastor, right? Did you go through theological training and how did that journey go for you? Yeah. So, um, within the Baptist world, um, Typically, elder and pastor are used interchangeably. That's what I thought. Okay. And so um, that's seen as one office. And, you know, in the Presbyterian world, you have like teaching elders and ruling elders, that kind of thing. We we don't tend to make that distinction. Some churches would. Um, maybe informally, when you say pastor, you usually mean somebody who's paid by the church. Gotcha. And if you use elder, you may not be. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I am not uh, on staff. I was for a time in yeah. an associate role, and that was really when our church was going through a big burst of growth and we just needed more hands on deck. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I'm not now. I did not get formal theological training. Um, if I had to live life over again, I very much would. Oh, yeah. um, I had no designs on ministry mm -hmm. or anything else. I wanted to get into computers and just kind of disappear into a little office and yeah. do that. <laughs> um, I had no, I'm terrified of public speaking still sometimes can be and have no desire to be a public figure yeah so <laughs> the longer this goes on the less desire i have to be a public yeah. figure and all that so yeah i'm very content to to do it mm -hmm. i think it's the lord's kind of just blessed what i've been doing especially in the writing and i'm glad to carry that on but um yeah i don't yeah i think it helps it helps all of us um you know people just reading reading your blog and watching some videos stuff just give us things to think about so yeah um, well i love to resource the church and mm -hmm. i love to do that by writing stuff but also by directing people to stuff and yeah. so the real joy of it is being able to to help people in their christian walk mm -hmm. and you know you get just emails from time to time someone just saying this influenced me and it might be something i wrote or it might be something i recommended a book i recommended or directing people to an article or a podcast or something but um just a joy to be able to to send that stuff out and mm -hmm. help people encounter good solid information totally yeah you wrote a book uh, a couple years ago as well on um being productive and, and mm -hmm. building good habits too and you mentioned reading and podcasts and, and promoting these things um, we kind of started this podcast for a lot of people who, um, like we have these good magazines in our circles, right? Clarion and whatnot. Yep. 
farm perspective, obviously, who's uh, bringing this podcast to you. Nice and, little product uh, placement. I like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. well, yeah. I do it again. You know, yeah. it's a rep, uh, rep RP. But anyways, the point being is a lot of people, uh, definitely definitely our age and, and just even older too, uh, reading seems to be a very much a minority taste. Um, do you have any tips for people to get into reading, to build healthy reading habits? And then, I mean, we touched on this earlier, but like podcasts can be somewhat useful, we hope. Um, do you, <laughs> would you recommend people do both or kind of play to your strengths or what are you thinking there? Yeah, I think they're different things, right? There's, yeah. there's again, ideas embedded in uh, different technologies and there's a kind of permanence to a book. There's an ability to go over it again and again and mark it up. You can't draw margin notes in a podcast. You can't, you know, highlight a podcast. They're, just, yep. they're different. Mm. Um, so I think it's great if you're driving around. I know lots of guys who spend lots of time driving around. Podcasts were made for that. Mm -hmm. Literally, they're perfect for yep. that. Um, so too are audiobooks. And so you can listen to some books. Um, I think there's a lot of value in just finding a way of encountering information that works for you. There's some sermon listeners. Like for me, I don't care to listen to sermons beyond Sunday. It's just not my preferred form of, of learning. I'd rather read a book or listen to a podcast or something. Mm -hmm. um, but other some people I know just listen to sermons all week long as they drive around and that's fine. But um, I mean, ultimately what we're trying to do is just encounter the truth of God's word all throughout our lives. So the more mm -hmm. of God's word we have, we can, the more of it we can apply and the more we can become like Christ. So one way or another, I'd say, try and find ways of getting Bible into you. And that's spending time in the word directly, but it's also just listening to things that are explaining the Bible coming from a Christian worldview, whatever. So yeah, just find ways of encountering truth. Yeah. yeah I so, think that kind of book ends it nice or yeah. podcast ends it nice. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Cause yeah. I mean, just, just talking about filling those, those gaps in your day or, or filling your time with um, the truth from the gospel and you know, that, I guess it also ties back into, um, a struggle with pornography and stuff, um, where you, we can fill that time now with something that's good yeah. and wholesome and, and, you know, right. true instead of, yeah. Yeah. We didn't talk about this earlier, but I think one way people go wrong when they're fighting pornography is to take pornography away without putting anything else in its place. Mm -hmm. Right. And whenever we're battling sin, the point is not just to to not sin. The point is to be holy. God hasn't called a people out of darkness so we can not sin. He's called us out of darkness so we can be light, so mm -hmm. we can do what's right and just and holy before him. And so when you're taking sin away from your life, I'm spending a lot of time online. I'm spending a lot of time looking at porn. Okay, take that sin away. Absolutely. But put something in its place. Do mm -hmm. something right and good in yeah. that time. And maybe that's reading books and listening to podcasts or just otherwise encountering truth that can counter mm. error. Totally. Yeah. Well, we're definitely out of time at this point. So yeah, we should wrap this so up. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. I yeah. We should just let you plug any upcoming projects where people can find you, that sort of thing. Yeah. Charlie's.com. I'm there every day. Um, something new every day. And uh, again, I just want to thank the, the Canadian reformed. I'm, I'm treating you as the sure the the for the whole, <laughs> whole, whole thing but torchbearers yeah. i'm i'm excited at what i've seen in the canadian front i mean it was good to me when i was a kid and um when i was a teen i have lots of fond memories and i'm thankful for the churches and i'm looking forward to seeing the churches just continue to mobilize as the culture turns away from from truth i think there's just these bastions of good sound doctrine and uh mm. people who are eager to serve the lord and 
yeah, I, I think there's there's lots we can do together, even admitting our differences, acknowledging those differences. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, if Christians can join with second wave feminists and classical liberals <laughs> yeah. to take on certain things, we can uh, Baptist, Reformed Baptists and Canadian Reformers can join together and uh, yeah, create, create just, get some good in the world. Yeah. 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 Good stuff. Well, thank you good for stuff. listening. Thanks so much. Keep having real conversations. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. If you want to send us your feedback, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online, go to realtalkpodcast.ca. If you want to find us on social media or your favorite podcast app, just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come up. Looking forward to your feedback as that's what helps us grow and improve as podcasters. This show is produced by myself, Lucas Holfleur, and Tyler Vanderwood. The theme music was produced by Calvin Hutton. Photo and video credits for this episode go to Ben Nobles. And finally, the table and cabinet in the studio here are made by Ethan Bannerwood of Eureka Woods. Thank you once again for listening. We hope you were informed and inspired by this episode. Keep having real conversations and we'll catch you on the next one.